<laughs> Problem is, when I go fast, I try to add things to it. Anyway, there, a part of God's every work in our lives as disciples of Jesus is to make us like Jesus. The Bible says quite a bit about this. We are predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus, Romans 8.28. We are saved to be given the righteousness of Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.21. We are changed from glory to glory to be ever more like Jesus, 2 Corinthians 3.18. As disciples of Jesus, we are to have the mind of Jesus, 1 Corinthians 2.16. And we are to have the attitude of Jesus, Philippians 2 and 5. We are to love others as Jesus has loved us, John 13.34. We are to be holy as Jesus is holy. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. We are to live in obedience to God as Jesus lived in obedience to God. 1 John 2, 3 through 6. And we are to follow the example of Jesus in our lives. John 13, 13 through 16. And that's just a small sample of what God's word says about disciples of Jesus being like Jesus. But it's enough to reveal to us a part of everything God does in us, through us and for us is to make us like Jesus. And one of the ways we are to be like Jesus, one of the ways we are to follow the example of Jesus, is in the way we serve others. When we get to Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, we're going to find that Jesus is a Savior who serves. And we are to follow His example. And what would it look like, though? What would it look like for us to follow the example of Jesus in the way we serve the people around us? That's what we're going to look at today. Open your Bible, open God's Word to Mark 7. Verse 24 should be on page 767 in your pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. And I'm going to read verses 24 through 37. Now Jesus got up and went from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know about it, yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing about him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came, fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, Syrophoenician descent, and she repeatedly asked him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, because of this answer, go, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And after going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Again, he left the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. And when they brought him, brought to him one who was deaf and had difficulty speaking, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself. And put his fingers in his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue with a saliva. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said, Apatha, which is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. And he gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. And they were utterly astonished, saying, he has done all things well. He makes even those who are deaf to hear and those who are unable to talk to speak. The title of the message this morning is The Savior Who Serves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and glorious. You are wonderful. 
and worthy. We are excited for the opportunity to study your word, excited for the opportunity to hear more about how we can and should be like Jesus. So, Father, today we ask you to help us lay aside any cares of life we've brought in. Father, help us not to be distracted, but to be focused on what you have for us in this passage. As we look at the example of Jesus, let our hearts be stirred and a desire be placed within us to be ever more like him than we were before. Lord, help us to know that as disciples of Christ, we are to serve as our master served. And let us, Father, lay aside any sense of selfishness or self-centeredness. And let us be willing to put others ahead of ourselves and serve them as Jesus did. Fill me this morning with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech and help me to say the things you once said, Father, nothing more, nothing less. Use what we study here today to sanctify us. Use what we study here today to make us more like Jesus. Use what we study here today to restore the prodigals, to save the lost, set captives free, and to raise the spiritually dead to new life in Christ. We love you, Lord. Have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This passage, it shows us Jesus serving different people in different ways in different places. And, and, And we'll talk more about this next week, but this is just who Jesus is. This is just what Jesus does. Everywhere he goes, he serves the people he comes into contact with. And if we are going to follow the example of Jesus, if we are going to be like Jesus then we must serve like Jesus. So our our main truth is to be like Jesus, we must serve like Jesus. To be like Jesus, we must serve like Jesus. Now this passage, it shows us four ways Jesus served and how we are to imitate Jesus so that we can be more and more like Jesus. Number one is Jesus served wherever he was needed. Jesus cared about people. This was just the way he lived his life. And so he went where people were, and he went where people needed him, and he went there with the purpose of serving them, even though he was the Son of God. This passage is filled with almost near constant motion from the beginning to the end. In verse 24, he goes to the region of Tyre, he goes into a house, he meets a woman, he delivers her, he goes to another place in verse 31, there's crowds of people that meet him, he deals with somebody, and he deals with them there, and he heals them. Mark chapter 8, he goes to a different place in the region. Jesus went to all of these places intentionally. Jesus went to all of these places because there were people in those places who needed him. Jesus always went wherever he was needed so he could serve the people who were there. This is the pattern of Jesus' ministry we are to follow. Serving Jesus, to be like Jesus, isn't a stationary activity. It would be great if all the people in our community who needed Jesus would just come to church and ask for help. It would be great as we go out as disciples of Jesus this next week, all the people that we encounter who need Jesus would just come to us and say, Hey, do you know Jesus? Can you help me in this area of my life? And as great as that would be, it is very unlikely it will happen. Therefore, as disciples of Jesus, we have to be active. We have to be on the move. We have to go where the people are so that we can serve them in the name of Jesus. We must go to people who need Jesus so we can follow Jesus' example and serve them. But a question could arise. How do I know where I'm needed? 
How do I know where Jesus is needed? Well, I can't give you specifics. I can give you some general guidelines. Right? Who are people you're burdened about? Who weighs heavily on your heart? People typically weigh on our hearts for one of two reasons. We know them, we love them, and we care about them. Or the Lord has laid them on our hearts. Now, both are good indicators. This is where we are needed. This is where we need to go and serve. Those we know and care about, know we care about them. So when we serve them in the name of Jesus, they will receive it in that way. They will receive it as though we love them, we care about them, we're helping them in the name of Christ our Lord. And if Jesus has laid someone on our hearts, then there is a reason He has laid them on our hearts. He puts them on our hearts so that we can go to them and we can serve them in one way or another in His name. Don't waste the burdens you feel. A burden you feel for a person or a place or an area, give heed to that. That is either you know them and love them or the Lord is burdening you to go and do it. Do not pass it off. Do not let it go away. Give heed to it and go and serve those people in the name of Jesus. Also, be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will always lead us to do what Jesus wants us to do. So part of that is He will lead us to serve people in Jesus' name. So don't be too quick to dismiss a thought. That comes into your mind. Tomorrow you're praying and a, a thought about going and serving someone in some way. Go pray for them. Cook them a meal. Take it to them. Go mow their lawn. Something like that pops into your mind. Don't quickly dismiss it. Don't assume that was just your random ideas. Give place to the possibility that the Holy Spirit is burdening you. That the Holy Spirit is, is leading you to call them, to visit them, to pray with them or to serve them in some other way. But it is it is very possible these sort of thoughts originate with the Holy Spirit. And I don't have a lot of time for this part, but let me let me say our question at that time is, well, what if I'm wrong? Right. What if I'm reading my Bible tomorrow and there's a very encouraging verse comes to my mind. And as I'm writing in my journal about those thoughts, Brody comes to my mind. And what if it's it's really not the Holy Spirit leading me to share this with Brody? What if? What if it's just I saw Brody today and so I thought of him while I was reading my Bible? So what? What is the worst that's going to happen if I send Brody a text and be like, Hey, brother, I was reading my Bible today and I read this verse and I had these thoughts and the Lord brought you to my mind and just God bless you. What's the worst that happens? Well, Brody knows I thought about him. Brody knows I was reading my Bible. Brody knows that I think that the God of heaven cared enough about him for me to send him a message from God's word. So what, what's the bad? What's the downside of me being wrong about it not being the Holy Spirit? There's not one. And I'm convinced we get points for trying. Right? Here's what I mean. I think that's for Brody from the Holy Spirit. I send it to him. It wasn't. It was just me. But God goes, God watches that and he says, Stacy. Is interested in being led of the Spirit and doing what the Holy Spirit wants him to do. I can trust him to give messages. I can trust him to go and serve people. I can trust him for the Holy Spirit to lead him, go and do these things. We get points for trying. So don't dismiss the opportunities. Don't dismiss the thoughts that come into your mind. Give heed to them and say, this may well be the Holy Spirit leading me to go and serve other people. Then just look for opportunities. 
We live in a fallen, sin-cursed world. Therefore, we are constantly surrounded by people who need help, hope, and healing. Only Jesus can give. We live among a people who struggle with trials and troubles and hurts and hang-ups and spiritual issues and doubts and all manner of temptations. Every single day, we are greeted by people who are hurting, who are confused, who are enslaved, and who are deceived. There is no lack of people who need Jesus in our general vicinity. There is no need of opportunities to serve people in the name of Jesus. What there is a lack of is people who are willing to serve others in the name of Jesus. The opportunities abound every single day all around us. Jesus served wherever He was needed. That's what we're to do as well. If we want to be like Jesus, we must serve like Jesus. Therefore, we must serve wherever we are needed. Secondly, Jesus served individuals. Now, in this passage, there is a, an interesting contrast in the two stories. Right? Look at verse 25. After hearing about Him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. So, Jesus comes, he tries to hide, but he could not escape notice. A woman in the area hears about him, and she comes to him. Now look at verse 32. He goes to a different area, and it says, And they brought to Jesus one who was deaf and had difficulty speaking. So, you have a woman who hears about Jesus and comes on her own. And you have a crowd that hears about Jesus and brings their friend to Jesus. The woman came alone, but the man came with a crowd. In one instance, there's an individual. In another instance, there's a great group of people around him. In one instance, there is a, a man who needs help, but the crowd is watching what happens. In one instance, there is a woman and nobody but Jesus and his disciples see what's going on. And Jesus serves both. Jesus does not dismiss the individual woman because the crowds won't see. Jesus doesn't wait until the crowd gathers around the woman to serve her so that everyone can see what it was he had done. In fact, Jesus sends the woman away and in verse 30, she goes back to her home and she found the child lying on the bed and the demon gone. It does not appear that any person other than the mother and the child knew this miracle of her deliverance had happened. The only reason we know about it is because the Holy Spirit inspired Mark to write it down for us. And this contrasts with the great crowds who saw Jesus in the other story and were utterly astonished, saying he had done all things well. The principle for us is there will be times where we serve and people see. And there will be times where we serve and only we and Jesus and the person we serve know about it. To be like Jesus, we must be willing to serve the individual just as surely as we're willing to serve the crowd. We must be willing to serve in unnoticed ways just as much as we're willing to serve in ways that people see. I listened to a sermon emphasizing this point about the need to serve the one. Listen to some of what he said. Ministering to the one is rarely convenient and is often while you're on your way somewhere else. There are opportunities given to us each day to minister to others. 
Be aware of this. And when you see these opportunities, take them. Ministering to the crowds is far easier than ministering to the one. Ministering to a crowd allows us to have superficial engagement with the people. Ministering to the one requires us to get to the messiness of life. You minister to the crowd for a set period of time and then you're done. Ministering to the one often requires a significant investment of time. Ministering to the one reveals how much of the fruit of the Spirit is really being produced in our lives. It's easy to love from afar. It's easy to be kind when you're in front of a crowd. It's easy to be long-suffering when everything is happening on your timetable. The test of those things is seen when ministering to the one. Ministering to the one reveals whether or not you're gifted to minister. It's easier to say something to the crowds that gets an amen than it is to say something to the one that's helpful. Ministering to the one can change a region. Jesus ministered to one man possessed with legions of demons. Jesus sent that one man out to tell people what great things the Lord had done for him. The next time Jesus came to that region, there were multitudes looking for him. If you're too busy to minister to the one, you're too busy. None of us are under any more pressure to perform than Jesus was. None of us have any more sense of urgency about our ministry than Jesus did. None of us are busier or more important than Jesus was. Therefore, we have time to minister to the one just as Jesus did. Ministering to the one, as it said, is far more difficult than ministering to a crowd. Preaching in front of a group of people is far easier than talking one-on-one to a person. Ministering to the crowd like this, again, we're on a timetable. We all met at a certain time. We're going to get out at a certainish time. And then we're going to go on. But to the one, there's not. This is a scheduled time. I've known all week this time was coming. This wasn't a surprise. Tomorrow as I go to Walmart to get groceries or run at whatever errands I run, the one I run into, though, that'll be a surprise. That takes more effort. That takes more time. That requires me to be more selfless and less selfish. But that's how Jesus was. Jesus was on a mission. It was leading to the cross. But he still took the time to minister to the one. If we're going to be like Jesus, we have to be willing to serve individuals. We have to be willing to serve when it's inconvenient. We have to be willing to serve when it goes longer than we think it should. We have to be willing to be patient and kind and loving, even if we feel annoyed in our heart and in our soul. If we want to be like Jesus, we must serve like Jesus. And therefore, we must serve individuals. Thirdly, Jesus served without artificial barriers. Now, this this section, verses 25 through 30, where Jesus deals with the Syrophoenician woman is interesting for several reasons. First, where Jesus goes to serve. Tyre um, is outside the bounds of Israel. It is not within the boundaries of Judah or Israel. And it is the only time, unless I'm mistaken, Jesus ventures outside the borders of Israel. In the area, Tyre and in Sidon, where he goes, the people there were not only Gentiles, but they were deeply pagan. Uh, And they had a long history of opposing Israel. The spiritual darkness in pagan Tyre and pagan Sidon were, were deep and long and centuries old. Right? I mean, it was hundreds and thousands of years. They had been pagans. They had worshipped their false gods. They had done all manner of wicked things in worship of their gods. And yet, this is where Jesus goes. 
And Jesus didn't just drift to this spiritually dark place. Jesus intentionally went to this spiritually dark place with the purpose and the intention of ministering to the people that we read about in these stories. That was the reason he went. A second reason this passage is interesting is that Jesus interacts with this woman. Right? The mother comes to Jesus. She tells him she has her daughter has a demon and asks him to heal. Now, the wording says that she repeatedly asked, which implies that he ignored her. He didn't answer at first. When you read Matthew's account, you find out he did ignore her at first. In fact, he ignored her for so long that his disciples said, Lord, just tell her to go away so she'll leave us alone. So Jesus ignores her, which is not what we would expect. But she doesn't give up. She continues. Heal my daughter, heal my daughter, heal my daughter. And then when Jesus does respond, notice what he says. Let the children be satisfied first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. So Jesus called her a dog. What's up with that? Right? Not in a kind of a cool, what's up dog kind of way either. I mean, he's, this is a, a deep insult to the Jewish people. They considered Gentiles to be dogs. Now, a dog in this culture wasn't man's best friend. A dog in this culture was considered to be a, a disease-ridden scavenger. To call someone a dog was, was a terrible insult. And Jesus called her a dog. It was meant to be a humiliating label for those who were not part of the covenant people of God. But even this does not deter the woman. She says, yes, Lord, in verse 28, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. So she falls down before him. She cries out. And she uses the what he said about dogs and uses it and makes an illustration. Because not all dogs were disease-ridden scavengers. There were like what we would call a watchdog. And they were kept in the house. And they, they fed them typically from the table. And her point is, okay, yes, you don't take the children's food and give it to the dogs. But children are messy. And they drop crumbs and the dogs get to eat that. And Jesus likes this answer and he helps her and sends her on her way. The point I want us to focus on, though, is that Jesus did help her. I want us to focus on the fact that, one, she was a woman, and secondly, that she's not a Jew. Neither of those seems significant to our way of thinking. A guy helping a woman would not be odd in our culture. In the Jewish culture, though, it was. A righteous Jewish man would have almost no interaction with a woman that he was not related to. And virtually no Jewish people would have anything to do with those who were not Jews unless they were God-fearers. And even then, it was very limited. So Jesus interacting with her and Jesus healing her daughter, it crosses boundaries that other good Jews would not cross. It crossed barriers that would have kept anyone else any other Jewish man would not have helped her, would not have paid attention to her. But Jesus crossed the boundaries that others wanted to erect. And he ministered to her and he helped her anyway. So the principle for us is we cannot let artificial barriers keep us from serving others in Jesus' name. Look at what the Apostle Paul said. I am under obligation 
both to Greeks and to the uncultured, both to the wise and to the foolish. Obligation is a strong word. It, it doesn't mean he, he kind of thinks maybe it would be a good idea for him to serve these people. But he, he felt that because of what Christ had done with, for him, he owed it to everyone else to tell them about Jesus as well. And he makes two important distinctions to the Greeks, to the uncultured. In the Greek mindset, anyone who was not a Greek or who was not a part of Greek culture was considered uncultured. Or in some translations, it would say a barbarian. And then he feels obligated to the wise and the foolish, the educated and the uneducated. Paul is basically saying he wants to serve all people in the name of Jesus. That he's not going to let artificial barriers like race or nationality or culture or social economic status keep him from serving people in the name of Jesus. He is going to serve those who are like him and he is going to serve those who are very unlike him. He is indiscriminate. If they need Jesus and they need to be served in the name of Jesus, he will serve them regardless of anything else. As we seek to serve others in Jesus name. Things like race and nationality and culture or social economic status should not ever even enter our minds. That sort of discrimination is sinful. We can no more claim to love Jesus and faithfully be following Jesus while we hate someone. Or discriminate against someone for being Hispanic or black or Asian or Arabic or white. We can no more be faithful to Jesus and hate or discriminate against people because of their skin color, their ethnicity or their nationality. Than we can be a faithful follower of Jesus while sleeping with our neighbor's spouse. It is sinful. It is wicked. It is wrong. We must be willing to serve those who are like us and we must be willing to serve those who are not like us. This is what Jesus did. For to be sure, no one was quite like Jesus. Not anyone in Bible times and not anyone in here today. And yet Jesus still ministers to us on a daily basis. If we want to be like Jesus, we must serve like Jesus. Therefore, we must serve without artificial barriers. And then finally, Jesus served those crying out for help. Verse 32, they brought him a man who was deaf and had difficulty speaking, and they begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. Beg is a strong word. It's more than a polite if you wouldn't mind. They're shamelessly begging Jesus to just to lay his hand on the man and to heal him. So Jesus takes the man aside from the crowd, puts his finger Fingers in his ears and after spitting in his ear and put his fingers in his ear, and after spitting, he touched the man's tongue with his saliva and looking up to heaven with a deep sigh. He said to him, be opened and his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was removed and he began to speak plainly. Now, all of this is really important and really kind of interesting. We don't have time to look at all of it. One thing I want us to focus on is that before Jesus prayed, it says that he looked up to heaven with a deep sigh. Now, that could seem like a minor point, but I don't believe it is. This is an expression of Jesus' love and compassion for the guy. 
It's also an expression of Jesus' profound grief over the fall and the terrible consequences of sin. Now, this doesn't mean this man sinned and that's why he was deaf. It just means sin broke the world. Therefore, this man was deaf and he was mute. Sin affects and infects all things. Right? So keep in mind, prior to the fall, prior to Adam and Eve sinning in the Garden of Eden, there was no sin, there was no sickness, there was no disease, and there was no death. All of those things are a result of Adam and Eve's sin. All of the bad we see in the world is a result of the fall. This is true whether we're talking about a school shooter or whether we're talking about a war. It's true whether we're talking about a drought and famine or whether we're talking about cancer or some other deadly disease. Everything in the world is broken. And it's all broken because of sin. Jesus' deep sigh in this passage flows from a heart broken over the terrible effects of sin and the way it hurts the people he loves. Jesus heard their cry for help. His heart was moved over their cry for help. So he served the one who was crying out for help. Like Jesus, our ears should be attuned to hearing those crying out for help. How many around us are crying out for help? How many around us are crying out in misery and oppression in their life? Now, what makes this difficult, I think, is that people who cry out in misery don't often cry out in ways that seem like they're crying out in misery. Maybe their cries come out like cries of anger. But the anger hides a deep misery. I I mean, I think we can say clearly someone who is always angry has something wrong with them. Right. Somebody who is just perpetually angry and on the verge of explosion. There is something wrong. Probably they're miserable. And that's a cry for help. Maybe the cries come out like constant whining. But the whining hides a deep misery. Again, somebody who always complains, always finds something wrong, who behind every cloud they see that, or every silver lining, they see that dark cloud. For every time something good happens, they tell you how it's going to go bad. Make no mistake, there's something wrong in that person's heart. There's something wrong in that person's soul. And probably it's a cry for help flowing from deep misery. Maybe their cries come out as vulgarity. But the vulgarity hides a deep misery. Jesus says that what comes out of our mouth is the overflow of our heart. So what does constant, vulgar speech say about our lives, about our hearts? Clearly it says they are not right with God. And so probably someone whose language is consistently vulgar, probably it's cover up for a deep misery. And maybe their cries come out as constant humor. Humor hides a deep misery. I mean, we think of people like Robin Williams, who was hilarious, always had a joke, but apparently was a very miserable, unhappy person. Could we say, could we say accurately that someone who never takes anything seriously, who always makes everything into a joke, is it possible that their lack of taking things seriously is a cover? For how miserable they are in their hearts and in their souls. 
I think that's certainly a possibility. And the number of people like Robin Williams who commit suicide seems to back up that that's certainly possible. And so what we need to have are ears to hear. And, and I think this is hard because I don't want to be around angry people. Do you? The Bible even warns us not to be around angry people or we'll catch what they have and be like they are. And, and, and you, you guys are probably more spiritual than me, but, but constant whining gets on my nerves. There's just only so much of that, and, and I just want to mute my phone so I don't have to hear it. Now, again, you probably don't struggle with that, but I, I do. And constant vulgarity. I mean, there just are times where it, it angers me. And, and while I, I like a good joke as much as the next person, the inability to take anything seriously, it grates on my nerves. I mean, there are just some things in life that are serious. And they ought to be treated that way. And so the problem really isn't them. They have issues. The problem is me. I have to be a big boy and get over the fact that I don't like their anger. I don't like their whining. I don't like their vulgarity. And I don't like their... Constant humor. I have to be a big boy and, and hear that for what it is. Cries of, of misery and go to help them. And when we hear their cries for help, our response should mirror Jesus' response. A deep sigh in our spirit that comes from a heart broken over the effects of sin. After Jerusalem had been destroyed. Jeremiah wrote this down. My eyes run down with streams of water because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes flow unceasingly without stopping until the Lord looks down and sees from heaven. My eyes bring pain to my soul because of all the daughters of my city. Jeremiah looked at the city he loved and the people he cared for. And he saw the destruction that their sin had brought into their lives. And his heart was broken. And this should be an example and a model for us. People all around us are being destroyed by sin and being destroyed by Satan. This should burden our hearts until our eyes overflow like rivers of water. What we see in our community that demonstrates the destructive effects of sin should bring suffering to our souls. Prayers from our lips and actions of service to others in Jesus' name. And this should continue until the Lord looks down from heaven, sees and acts. We must hear people's cry for help. If we want to be like Jesus, we must serve like Jesus. Therefore, we must serve those crying out for help, no matter how those cries come out. Now, this story ends, verse 37. They were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even those who are deaf to hear and those who are unable to talk speak. Jesus does all things well. He is glorified through what He had done. People recognize the greatness of Jesus. The people recognize the uniqueness of Jesus. And the people begin to place their faith in Jesus. The lesson for us 
is to be careful in our service. There is always a temptation to serve for our own glory. The human heart craves the adulation of the crowd. The human heart craves people to say, you are wonderful. Man, there need to be more people like you. If other Christians were like you, the church would be in so much better shape than it's in today. The human heart loves that. The human heart craves that. This is why Jesus warns us in the Sermon on the Mount not to, not to pray and not to fast and not to, to be generous in ways that people see. He said, because if we, if we do it so that people will see us and praise us, we will likely be praised. But that's all we get. We miss out on our Father who sees in secret rewarding us openly. I think the same principle applies to serving in Jesus' name. If we serve for our glory, if we serve for the praises of people, we will likely get that praise. But that is all we will get. We don't make any progress in becoming like Jesus through that service. In fact, we will not even please Jesus with this self-glorifying service. So keep that in mind. We can do the right thing for the wrong reasons and God will not be pleased in the process. How can I say that? Because Isaiah 42.8 says God will not share His glory with another. God will not share His glory with me. And God will not share His glory with you. And so we must serve for the glory of Christ and not for our own glory. One last thing and we'll close. Look at the end of verse 24. Jesus did not want anyone to know He was there, but He could not escape notice. Jesus could not be hidden. If we are becoming more like Jesus and we are serving like Jesus, this transformation will become evident in our lives. We won't be able to hide what Christ is doing in us and through us and for us. The light of Jesus would shine out from us. And as Jesus said in Matthew 5, that all the world would glorify God as they see the light that is in us. The world around us is spiritually dark and they're desperately in need of the light of Christ. And that light cannot be hidden in us. It must be expressed. It must be lived out. And if we seek to become like Jesus and we begin to serve in the ways of Jesus, those trapped in darkness will see the light and they will be drawn to it. They will be drawn to the Christ in us. They won't be drawn to our personalities. They won't be drawn to our eloquence or our selflessness. They will be drawn to the Jesus in us. And that's what we want. For Jesus is the one who can save them. Jesus is the one who can help them. You and I, we cannot, apart from God, we have nothing to give them. Let's be that light. Let's be a people who are determined to serve wherever we're needed, to serve in the name of Jesus, to do it patiently, to hear the cries for help, to not let the artificial barriers the world would want to erect keep us from people. Let's be inconvenienced and serve the individual. And let's do it for the glory of Christ so that He would be elevated and all would be drawn to Him. So in what ways, I want to ask you this, 
In what ways are you becoming more like Jesus? In what ways do you desire to follow Jesus' example of serving others? And I want to suggest, if you don't see any way you're becoming more like Jesus, and if you don't have a desire to follow Jesus' example of serving others, there is a great likelihood you don't actually know Jesus because you have never been saved by Jesus. Those who know Jesus are saved by Jesus, and those who are saved by Jesus want to be like Jesus and will serve like Jesus. If this is the case, that you've never truly been born again, then your great need today is to repent of your sins, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, determined to follow Him. Repentance is a change of mind about God and sin, resulting in a change of life. It is to realize God is right about sin and we have been wrong. On a natural level, as human beings, we don't see anything wrong with our sin. As humans, we are kings and queens at self-justification. You and I can do the exact same sin. And I can tell you why mine's okay and yours is horrific. And in our minds, we think that's okay with God, but it's not. Repentance is saying, my sin is just as intolerable to God as everyone else's sin. My sin is just as disgusting in the eyes of God as everyone else's sin. My sin is just as condemning as everyone else's sin. Repentance is agreeing with God because, make no mistake, that is what God says about your sin and mine. So repentance, we align our minds with God. This is what God has said and God is right and I am wrong. And this repentance leads us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, believing on Jesus is not just believing there was a guy named Jesus who lived and died and rose again. People believe that and they will die and go to hell all the time. Believing in Jesus is believing that what he did on the cross is the only hope for salvation we have. Believing in Jesus is believing that what he did on the cross, that's my righteousness comes from him, not of me. I, I don't I don't save myself and Jesus doesn't help me save myself. Right. Jesus is not like in, in the gym. You have spotters. Right? You, you're doing a bench press. You have somebody that spots you. And the goal of the spotter isn't to, to lift the weights for you. The goal of the spotter is when you're struggling, they, they do just a little bit, just as little as possible if they're a good spotter. Until you do all that you can. Jesus is not the spotter in your life. Jesus doesn't just help when you need it. And you struggled to be righteous, but he kind of lifted a little bit and got you the way. It's not what it is. Salvation, righteousness from Christ is we're crushed under the weight. If you've ever lifted weights, you've had that terrible moment where the weight is down and you can't get it up. And what do you do now? If the weight is on you. And you can't get it up. And no matter what you do, it struggles. And the more you struggle, the more it hurts, doesn't it? I mean, it presses and it's cut in. And if you roll it down this way, you could fracture ribs. And of course, up this way, it's death. So you're struggling and you're pain. And the more you struggle, the more it hurts. And Jesus comes along and he lifts the weight up. And he racks it for us. That, that's salvation. We don't do a lot and Jesus kind of gets us over the hump. We do nothing. We're helpless. We can do nothing. Jesus does it all.
That's what it is to believe on Jesus for salvation. And if you or I, if we believe that we have added to our salvation, our, we're saved because we're good, we're saved because of we're good parents, or we're good husband and wife, or of this reason or that reason, it may be clear. You're not really saved if that's your belief. If you believe you are saved by anything other than what Christ has done, that it is Jesus plus nothing equals your salvation, if you believe anything is added to it that you have done, you are not saved. We have to let go of our self-sufficiency. We have to let go of our self-righteousness. And Jesus alone saves. So we must repent and we must believe. And the natural response of that is if I have truly repented of my sins and I have truly believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, He has saved me, I am going to give my all to do His will. This is what salvation is. This is what happens in salvation. If you have never made those decisions, if you have never agreed with God about your sin, if you have never placed all of your hope and all of your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have never surrendered your will to do His will, this is your greatest need today. I ask everyone to stand. And I'm going to pray. And as I pray, if you need to come forward and cry out to Jesus for salvation, you come forward and cry out to Jesus for salvation. You can pray where you are. I always want to be clear on that. Jesus is not any closer up here than He is back there. But in my experience, there is something powerful about praying at an altar. All of the life-changing spiritual decisions I made were not made in the pews. They were made at the altar. That doesn't mean it has to be that way for you. But I will always give opportunity for people to come to the altars because of how significant they've been in my life. So if you need to come or you want to come, you come. I'll pray and the altars will be open. Our Lord, we love you today. We thank you for your word that guides us. We thank you for Jesus who has saved us. We thank you for Jesus who is our example. Stir our hearts today to be ever more like him. If there's any today that don't know you, then, oh God, I pray you would stir their hearts and make them see they desperately need the salvation Jesus died to provide. Have your way in all of our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, the altars are open.